at this conference before. This picture of SpaceX's anticipated plan, it's not quite science fiction, it's not quite reality either, it's still an animation. But I must say, I was quite surprised firstly when it was uh, publicized so well. What um, amazed me even more when I started reading up and trying to understand uh, where these plans are coming from was that this is Elon Musk's company, uh, depiction of their, their uh, Falcon, uh, I think Falcon 9 or, or related rocket, that this was not a new plan. And in fact, that this was a response to plans that have actually been in place for the last two to three years by Boeing, NASA, and even the Chinese have declared that they are part of the race for Mars. Now, I think most of us know that the, the little Mars rover buggy has been driving around there for a few years. That's not what I'm talking about here. What we're talking about here is putting people on Mars, colonizing Mars. So obviously that was quite revolutionary for me. I knew to an extent, I mean, Mars is part of the bigger play. Um, we would probably in our lifetime see maybe a person on Mars. But I think yesterday somebody spoke about it as well, about social discounting. As, as long as the horizon is sort of more than 10, 20 years, you kind of push it away. Uh, it's, it'll, it, it might happen. But I think what was phenomenal about SpaceX's plan was that they intend to do this within the next 10 years, potentially even around 2025. Whereas the plans before that were all pushing 2030 in terms of putting people on a Mars from a colony po um, colonization point of view. So in the last two to three years, already that plan has, has come closer. And many of the other players here, Boeing specifically, also updated their plan subsequently to the release. So how does this tie in with our talk and, and what we are on about? It's basically, you think, well, we, we can try and imagine what we will be doing in five years' time or ten years' time, but it is also likely to be, to be wrong. It's likely there's probably a lot of other things that are going to be coming in. So from, to bring it back to South Africa, this, this planet, and the insurance industry, we face incredible change, and we know, we know about it. Yet, in an article published last month by the New York Times, it was referenced that funders of startup tech startups from Silicon Valley consider insurance as laggards, as um, archaic entities, not embracing technolo technological change. I suppose one of the, the elements that's really driving this change starts with within, with our, within our current customer base, the, our current policyholders that we deal with on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Customer expectations are changing rapidly. On the one hand, it's our existing customers that we have um, that are exposed to new digital channels that want to interact more frequently. Yes, some of them want the face-to-face -face experience, but if they just want to make a quick change to their policy term, they want to be able to do that maybe through an app and online. So technology, to an extent, is enabling that. But then also, the policyholders which we'd like to get, the lower LSMs, the, the lower bands, technology is enabling them to participate for the first time because of uh, things like the access that they have to cell phones. At some stage, I'm sure the next...
So technology enables them to push out into the incumbents, into us, into what we need to be dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. But at the same time, the outside world is also pushing in onto us, the incumbents. Things like, again, technology, we, there were talks about distributed ledger uh, yesterday and, and blockchain. Internet of Things is a huge thing for the general insurance industry and potentially, I'm sure, uh, health and life side as well with the health devices. All this technology enables not only, uh, so not only looking at our own policyholders, but it enables companies outside of the insurance industry to start playing on our turf. So again, bringing it back to what is our ability to really capture what we need to be doing next in order to keep up with all this rapid change? Should we be studying more? Should we be learning more? I mean, the actuarial skill set is pretty comprehensive from an, providing a service to in the insurance industry. Just for those that are involved in uh, the, the pricing game, so looking at, from, from a general insurance point of view, looking at um, a, a telematic example, just looking at 100,000 motor vehicles um, equipped with fairly simplistic telematics devices, you're generating, depending on the type of information and how complex it is, probably about a terabyte of data a month that's 40 gigs of data a day. Now, of course, we deal with this through various cutting out of columns and simplification and generation of scores and et cetera. But the point is, that is now. And that's a simplistic, simplistic um, sensor. What if we start collecting other data from that particular sensor? What if we add other sensors? At what point do we still want to simplify, reduce the data to work on? And at what point do we actually build something sustainable, sustainable that can just soak up the information as it's being generated? So the point for today's talk is really, we, do, we as actuaries are really good at a lot of things from the, in the insurance space. But our experience has been, we need to focus on, on where we add the most value. And we need to look at which components of the insurance and analytics value chain we can rely on other individuals, other skill sets and partners that really excel at those particular elements. Sure, we can do it all, and I'm sure we often think we can do it better, but I think if we want for our stakeholders and for our clients to deliver sustainable and value-adding solutions in the shortest amount of time, we need to adopt a mindset of partnering with the various role players. And we'll show you some examples today. Just quickly before we go on, you might have noticed at our stand that we have a uh, game going on. Um, we, I just thought I'd give, us, give you a quick update. Um, at the moment, so the, how the game works is you drive around the track and you get a score generated from, from the little car um, at the stand. Um, this is the current state of affairs. We will be handing out prizes at the end of lunchtime today. Um, so feel free to, to try and uh, change this, uh, uh, this ranking. I would like just to point out one interesting observation that uh, Chandani and, and Janine are both female drivers. Um, so I know all about uh, fairness, and, and, uh, but it seems like in even our little small example, the, uh, the, the rating models were right all along. So I'm going to ask Avish to please 
just explain to us a bit about how this game works and how it is really a, a metaphor almost for some of the experience that we've had. Thanks, Carl. Ooh, this is a full house, and um, being a non-actuary, I'm feeling a bit intimidated. So bear with me if I don't get the terminology right all the time. Just bear with me. Yeah, so Carl, I think it's, it's about starting with the end in mind. And the end in mind was quite simple. It was to understand sharp terms, apply some logic to those sharp terms, and come up with a score, and display the, uh, that score on a dashboard. For me, it was as simple as that. But, of course, there are nuances to it. So what did it take to achieve this? Now, when you do look at this particular diagram, what it does do is it takes a sophisticated piece of software called a Raspberry Pi. You have a car, and then you have some sort of infrastructure that pumps this particular data into a data storage area. In the data storage area, you apply some rules, you apply some algorithms, and then what you do is you create a a view on that particular world. But after you create that view, you've got to ingest some sort of third-party data that is not part of the sensor data itself. And you supplement the data, and when you do supplement the data, you end off with a driver scoreboard. It's as simple as that. Later in our examples, we will understand exactly why there's a bit more to this particular simple picture. But I've got to point out that today's story is not about telemetry. It's not about the car, it's not about the sensor, it is about collaboration. And it is about how this 1,000 Rand architecture, it just cost 1,000 Rand, we were able to achieve a dashboard in under a week. Now let's talk about traditional ways of how we went about achieving results when we spoke to IT. Let me guess, and I'll just take a guess, uh, uh, I'll just poke in the dark about this one. We first send a spec to this IT black hole. The spec comes back and says, look, we don't have enough information in the spec. And you think, what the hell is going on across the fence? And then you rewrite the spec, and you send the spec across the fence again. And then they have a meeting with you, and they say, no, we don't quite understand you. And then suddenly you are frustrated and say, please give me a product. And the IT guys go in the back and say, what the hell is going, across the, going, going on there? Do they have their ducks in a row? Do they even understand the business? And then they come up with this fantastic model, and they push it across the fence. And the fence says, mm, this doesn't quite, nah, I don't quite like it. So what do we do? I'm not going to go back through this whole spec story again. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get data myself. And I'm going to work on my laptop, and I'm going to download spreadsheets, and I'm going to make this thing work. That particular process there suddenly took us three months. And um, <coughs> it's... It's impossible to work in that, in, 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 in that particular vein. Carl, you alluded to how technology is changing things, how the world is evolving. And if we continue doing work in that particular manner, we are never going to evolve as quick enough as the world is, and we are going to be left behind. So I have seen a few of these particular uh, analytics projects. And the one thing that's interesting for me is, is that traditionally we always spoke about three components, scope and expectation, time and cost. And traditionally, we were always told that you could only choose two of them. But the problem is with choosing two is that you had an inferior quality product. Now, that there doesn't help us or our customer experience or our drivers. It doesn't help that. But guess what? Actually, sat in the room with information technologies. Kiddo, are you here? 
put your hand up. So Keith at the back developed the Raspberry Pi. He bought the Raspberry Pi, programmed it, got the car to work, pumped data into a database, into a database stored it correctly, and then Diervalt and Carl applied some sort of judgment rules and algorithms on it in order for us to get the score. But this all happened in one week. This particular process here has a knack of almost happening in three weeks. So Diervalt, I think it's testament to this work here and what we've done before, that you and I are actually standing on stage and presenting, instead of fighting with each another, as usual. Start. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So, I think it's very important just to take a step back and, 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 to, and, and to understand a few concepts. The first concept is that everything starts with a business strategy. And a business strategy has a vision and it has drivers. Under that particular uh, business strategy, we have an information layer. And the information layer is there to support the drivers and to understand how those drivers are performing against a target. And then below that, you have the enabling technology. Now, we've got to keep that particular architecture in mind when we, talk, uh, when we have this conversation right now. What happens is, is that organizations tend to fall into the trap of we will do everything ourselves. And what that means is that we do not play to our strengths. So when you look at this particular uh, example of the car and sensor and data storage, I think we must understand that IT is there to put down a worthy process the process must be trustable, the process must be repeatable, and the process must be consistent. What must they do? They must be able to ingest existing data sources to meet the existing business requirements. They must be able to store the data correctly and give the tools to the business so that they can interrogate these large volumes of data at absolute ease. Right. So that's where the IT part somehow stops. And if we can do that, then we enable business to do what they are there to do. That is to generate business value, supporting those particular drivers to drive the business strategy and the vision. That there's utopia. And that is what we are seeing happen more and more when we start working in a very, very collaborative style. So we've seen this a few times, this movie a few times, uh, dear Walt, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Not right now, but. And uh, I think what we are starting to see is that the companies that are really leapfrogging the other companies are adopting this collaborative style. So what do they do? They first of all, they throw away the spec. The spec comes very last. They go into an agile mode. The agile mode means that there's little documentation, but by no means does it mean there's no documentation. There has to be documentation somewhere. Because if something breaks or falls, people have to regenerate the system. But what they work with first is communication. And they work with what is the business challenge, how do we solve it? How do we solve it together? Let's get a working prototype off on, on the floor. Let's make sure that the, that, 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 that the fence is correct around our problem, and then we will go into the deep dive mode as soon as we are all happy. But what that, what, but what that takes is, is that it takes a very face-to-face -face approach. Now, in that face-to-face -face approach, there are certain challenges. The first certain challenges is, is that, and this is the first one, the skills. The skills get exposed. Now, if we, if we work on the pretense that IT is going to do all the collection and collation of data, and if we work on the pretense that uh, the business is going to do the value insight added, it means that their skill set has to change from what they were doing to a new way of working. So now it starts to talk about the ways of working in going forward. And the ways of working means that you do your job, I do my job, we communicate and we do this job together. That's what it talks about. The other challenge that we talk about is the delivery process. 
The delivery process has now been shortened. That means there are greater pressures on the IT organization and on the business organization for different reasons. IT organization to make sure that we can ingest the different data stores and, and, and provide a, a landscape and architecture for you to thrive. And on the business side is to find those problem, uh, to, to find those problem areas in the business and resolve them very quickly. So that particular pressure there is, is very important to understand because that there now starts pointing to your people, your process, and your technology. And how do you refine that? In actual fact, I think to put it in, uh, in very simple terms, our entire ways of working starts to change. And we need to understand that the only way that we can make this change is to change our mindset. Uh, and, and that's very important. Uh, we need to separate our collection and collation from our problem-solving abilities and leave people to play in the strengths of their areas. Okay. So, this is an interesting one. I'm going to walk you through an example of what was thrown to us um, by my colleagues here on my left. It is a, it is a geographic risk rating, and this was the end in mind. Uh, Carl, I'm not too sure if you want to add what was the particular, you, you, you can keep me honest, or what was the drivers behind this particular model, but I think that most of the people in the room should have a fair abreast of this particular scenario. Yeah. yeah so the, the idea was just, this, this is a separate example where we were um, considering potentially a more sustainable way of looking at rating. Um, so rather than linking ratings to individual persons, necessarily as a starting point, rather using geography as, as the starting point for rating. Because the idea is, once you start adding more and more data, it's a lot easier to incorporate. So in this particular scenario, we started with a, a, um, a map, and we ended up geocoding lots of information onto it. I think Avishwal will speak to you as we go along. But the business driver here was more about trying to identify the risky areas on geography. Correct. And yeah. I think that there was the important part. So how did we do this? We started off with the basic map. Now, let's think about the map. <laughs> South African roads, the name seemed to change every single day. Don't worry about the, uh, about the buildings. Now, we need to figure out a way as to how we keep this map updated at all given times. That then becomes data management function. And that should not reside in, uh, in my opinion, in the actuary's lap. It should not. They should not be having a spreadsheet that they need to maintain. No, IT needs to make sure that they tap into the right places to get the right road names and update the maps. That's how I see it. Then what we do is we were fortunate enough to get some data from C-Trax. And we overlaid all of the accident data on this map. And what you would see, there are certain hotspots that do start appearing. On that, we took historical data weather. Now, this is, this is where it becomes very interesting because the data weather and the C-Trax data are both external data. Now, it becomes a function of understanding how frequently do you want the data. What are the data quality controls we need to put in place to make sure the data is accurate? All of what I'm talking about takes a collaboration between IT and business. IT needs to get the data in, but business needs to help sort out the quality and the rules behind it to, to smoothen out the noise. Am I getting the term right? See, I'm learning. <laughs> uh, and after we, put, after, after we finished with the weather data, it became quite evident that there are certain areas of the, geography, of the geog geographic map that had different, a different risk rating. There were some were more riskier than others. Now, again, this is not a story about telemetry, but it's a story about how we all had to sit together in a room 
and for something that will probably have taken us probably a month, a month and a half, is now slimlined down to two or three weeks, just because we all decided to sit in a room and understand exactly how we are going to get to the end state together. Where are the roles, where are the, where are the rules, and who is doing what at what given time, and accessibility. Yes, it takes a bit of investment, but again, guys, I'm going to put you all on the spot. We've, been, we've seen this movie a few times. That investment now is seriously paying off. And I think that's what we all got to acknowledge, is that yes, up front, it's a bit of a rough road. You, you, you got to get used to each other. You got to get used to the language barrier, the communication barrier. But once you get over that, things start to work very, very efficiently. And in actual fact, those three aspects I spoke about all get addressed during this. So one of the challenges that you would find is, is that one in case we wanted to add Well, in case we wanted to add things like pothole information, because now sensors are evolving every single day of their lives. Well, in case you wanted to add pothole information, we start to go into an area where we start to look at a route and we start to almost risk rate individual portions of that route. Guys, you got anything to add to any views on that? So ultimately, I think this is an example of creating potentially a, a platform, and I th I'm sure many have, have tried or done it before, but the point is, you want to create something that is sustainable from the sense that you can easily add data and use the same processes to add the data, use the data, and extract value from it. Um, in this particular case, what, what made it challenging is, or what, what can make it challenging, is that the volumes of data that you process through this process quickly um, escalate as you add more and more data sources and, um, uh, what's say, sensor um, information bits. So, but ultimately, I think. The point is just to show that through collaboration, I mean, the, we didn't, it's not our data. We don't have the data. We don't have the systems. I mean, uh, we, we, uh, we went to our IT guys to look at what, what is the best architecture to do this kind of um, solution on. Um, and it's only through partnership with these various internal and external providers that allow you to derive a solution in a record short time. Mm. So what you're touching on now is almost a process. Because what we've managed to establish is a sustainable process that says that instead of you, whenever you dream of a third-party data source or anything of that nature, in order to ask for us to put into an ecosystem, it now takes us three days because we establish the process, instead of taking the normal one month or two months. And that's where it becomes really, really powerful and valuable. And then you talk about the technology, the technology aspect about trying to iterate through billions and billions of rows and being able to harmonize the data on a platform uh, through self-service. That's what we are talking about. And then we're talking about the people's, the people's skills. Just remember, throughout this collaboration, there's one thing that came about. IT and business got closer and closer and closer. And now there's more harmony than anything else. We're starting to talk each other's language, which is very important. Uh, dear Valt, you've been very quiet. Let's hear your view. <laughs> so I think the, the, the most important question we need to ask right now is why is all of this so important to us? as actuaries, whether you play in the life insurance game or in the short-term insurance game, why is it so important for us to have these conversations? And for me, as an actuary, it comes down to two important facts. 
The amount of available data to us today is increasing as we speak. In fact, I think since we started this presentation about 30 minutes ago, your company has underwritten a couple of new policyholders, your call center has fielded a few more calls, and you might even have experienced a few rants on your social media platforms or some Hello Peter complaints. This is the world we live in. This is what, it, what is happening. And these are all touch points with our policyholders. And when we talk about available data increasing, we're not only talking about the size of that data, but also the velocity of that data, so the, the speed at which the data hits us, but also the variety of data. We love to talk about unstructured data. Eh? We're very excited about uh, incorporating Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds in our, into our, our risk rating. And it doesn't matter in which world you play in, your available data is increasing. It's getting there. It's getting there. Fact number two is that companies that are able to mine their available data, to turn that available data and to make it effective is establishing a competitive advantage. And this we are seeing both locally as well as globally. And the applications in insurance are endless. We've spoken about these things at conferences uh, for pretty much the past two years now. More granular risk rating because we know a lot more about our policyholders, right? So through Fitbits, etc., we can have those conversations. Or be it through more accurate evaluations because now we know a lot more about our risks so we can do capital management a little bit better, right? Or be it through better customer service because now... We know a lot more about our customers, so we can offer them a, 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 a more personal service. And these are some of the applications. And then we're not even talking about the fancy machine learning, neural networks, random forests, um, artificial intelligence, intelligence yet. But here's the question that we are all asking. And that's why we attend all these talks, right? What do we need to do to our available data to establish that competitive advantage? Now, I was told by a very reliable source that when you do a presentation to an actuarial audience, you need to incorporate a function or a formula somewhere. So I did my best. This was the only place where it made sense. So there it is, and, uh, and enjoy it. So, so, so that, is the, that is the question we are asking. And I'm sorry to disappoint you folks, but there is no silver bullet. Each organization is unique, and each business problem is unique and that's why we come to these talks and so often we leave these talks disappointed because we as actuaries like things that are in black and white, things that we can reason with a formula, right? But there is no perfect recipe. But what motivated us to, do, to deliver this message today is a key ingredient that we have seen in successful analytics projects around insurance in our experience over the past couple of years. And that is the concept of partnership that we, we are talking about. And these are the organizations. The organiza organizations that are really good at partnering are able to establish the competitive advantage and drive innovation across their organizations. And I'll speak to a couple of, of, of those examples locally as well as globally today. And in fact, you've, you've seen an example of that here today. Um, and we've spoken quite a bit about it. Our actuarial, actuarial department at Deloitte needing to, to, to partner with our data analytics and uh, software engineer expert to be able to deliver what, what you have seen at the stand, uh, a, a, simple, a simple game that is a metaphor for something bigger. But we also had to partner externally with SeaTrack uh, as a telematics data provider, but also a device provider. Um, and that's, that allows us. Uh, allowed us. So, 
So I want, to, I want to have a quick discussion about partnership. And I think when we start talking about partnership, we need to distinguish between internal and external partnerships. So I'm going to talk about internal partnership quickly and talk to some examples. But first, we need to have a very honest discussion about silos. And I think, it's, I think we can all testify to the fact that it's difficult for us to admit, but actuaries and actuarial departments are notorious for operating in silos. But if you're a bit skeptic and you don't agree with me, um, then let's look a, take a quick look at this study. So this uh, study was, was done by, by FIS, and they posed a simple question to insurers. They asked actuarial departments, how well do you collaborate? How, do you, how well do you perceive the collaboration to be between yourself and other departments within your organization? So asset management and finance came out relatively high, but at a 40% level of collaboration, it still seems a bit weak if you take if you consider the amount of skills overlap in those departments and the, the, the extent to which the work being done in that, those departments actually overlap, overlap with actuarial departments. We can talk, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on the low human resources uh, um, component. We all know actuaries don't have feelings, right? But let's, let's, have a look at, uh, let's have a look at underwriting claims and sales. Isn't that surprising? Why is the collaboration with those departments so low? Aren't these some of the departments that actually can add immense value? But not only that, and a little bit more challenging to admit to ourselves, isn't there a lot we can learn about the nuts and the bolts of our business and our actual policyholder experience by being closer to those departments? And then perhaps those fancy experience investigations that we run about lapse and fraud experience, Perhaps those will, will, will start making a little bit, bit more sense. I want to touch on the IT collaboration real quick. And again, it came out relatively high. But still, lower than 40% collaboration leads me to think, isn't that level of collaboration a little bit weak? Isn't data the core ingredient to most actuarial work today? And I think what is important for us and uh, and the question I want to ask is, why are we so bad at partnering? Or why are we reluctant to partner? And I think the next step goes a long way to explaining that. So insurers were asked, insurers were asked, um, what do you see as the main stumbling blocks to driving innovation within your departments? So what is, you, what is keeping you back from innovation? 42% admitted that it's due to cultural issues and active resistance to change. Just let that sink in for a little bit. I'm very excited to meet the 1% that, that say that they don't have any stumbling blocks. Um, I, I'm keen for a beer later today so we can discuss what, what it is you are doing. But let's, look at a, let's look at effective data. And I, I wanna, at this point, I want to take a quick detour and look at a new way of working, and a way of working that we have seen being very successful across organizations. So we are all familiar with our frustrations regarding disparate underlying systems. So we can have long discussions about all the fancy advanced analytics we can do, right? But if we can't just do this right, we aren't going anywhere. So we have a lot of disparate systems. We have policy admin systems. Sometimes we have three or four of these, and some of them are still written in cobalt. 
We have underwriting systems that are a treasure trove of information because we put our, our potential policyholders through a thousand questions when they apply for a life insurance policy, for example. But we end up only using six or seven of those factors, right? So there's a treasure trove of information, but it's really difficult to mine. Uh, we have claim systems, which we all know is a nightmare to reconcile to anything within our business because the users and claims departments um, record pretty much whatever they want to sometimes. So it's very difficult to reconcile. Uh, then we can look at accounting systems, which we believe to be a single or hope to be a single source of truth across our organizations. And sometimes we also have external data that we want to combine. So for example, if you're part of an insurance group and you have a life insurance and a short-term insurance company, uh, we think, well, it will be very valuable if we can combine our short-term insurance information into the system, right? But it's so difficult to do. And we, it's such a mountain to climb, so we just give up right, right off the bat. So an approach we're seeing being developed, and this can only be achieved through effective collaboration, is a technology layer or a single view or a data lake, as I know Avish likes to call it, being established over, over these systems. And the real benefit and why this is proving to be so successful is it puts the data right in the hands of the actuary. And sometimes as actuaries, we, we, like to, we, we might think that we don't want to play with data, we want to play with data, but we want it to be available in a very agile fashion but also in a way that is really, really trusted. So we want to trust the data before we start playing with it. And the benefit of this is that through defining effective business rules right up front, building your technology layer, you can achieve that level of trust because your reconciliations are done as part of your business rules. Then it becomes really, really, really effective. And then a lot of things become possible. Real-time experience investigations, advanced analytics, all of these things that we dream about and we love, love to listen to guys with fancy ties at conferences talking about these stuff, but then these things become possible because now actuaries are able to do what they are employed to do and actuaries are able to do what they are paid to do. Identify and solve complex business problems. Not find, clean and transform data, which is what most of us are doing today, if we have to be honest with each other. So, so we spoke quite a bit about internal partnering, and I want to move over to another form of partnering, external partnering. And before I get there, I think it's important for us to have a frank discussion about disruptors, specifically startup disruptions. So let's look at some stats, right? So in 2014 alone, $800 million was invested in the U.S., for startup technology in insurance. A year later, that number tripled to 2.6 billion in the US alone. So Silicon Valley and venture capitalists are starting to realize that with this advent of, advent of big data that we spoke about, tech advances, the millennial revolution, whatever we want to call it, that the insurance industry is ripe for disruption. And Carl touched on this. Uh, the Financial Times saying that the insurance industry and labeling the insurance in industry as being laggard and ripe for disruption. And I think it's important for us as actuaries to realize that we need to, that the insurance game is changing and we need to be able to change with it. 
and we need to be part of the reinvention of the insurance game. Because if we're not doing it, someone else will, and someone else is already through these startup investments. One example that I just want to touch on, and, and I'll be doing an insured tech talk later today where I'll do a deeper dive into Lemonade. But Lemonade was able to, to establish $13 million in venture capital funding pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and they started trading in New York uh, about two months ago, and within their first two days, they were able to write $14,000 in insurance premiums, just in two days. Imagine what that number is going to be in a year's time. But here's the scary thought, right? Most of Lemonade's business doesn't come from new entrants into the market, so, so new insureds. Most of Lemonade's business is coming from people switching from their traditional insurance providers. And they're not switching between, because Lemonade is cheaper, they're switching because it's a better customer experience. And here's the scariest thought of all, Lemonade only employs one actuary. And, and that's a bit of a trend when, when you start doing research on insured tech companies. Very few of them actually employ actuaries. Something to think about as an industry, right? Let's move on. Enough bad news for now. 2016 has been bad enough, isn't that right? So, so let's talk about some good news. Of the 2.6 billion investment that I spoke about, 70% went towards collaborative opportunities or partnership, which is great news because traditional insurers are starting to realize what is happening. So we're seeing more and more traditional insurers partnering with startup investments. And this number is a lot different from the previous year where most of the funds went straight to startups. So the gray block is all about new entrants, and the red block is all about collaborative efforts. And that brings me to my second type of, this, of partnership, which we need to think about and is very important, partnering with startups and partnering with the InsureTech environment. So let's take a look at some examples. Allianz, the major European insurer and the bigger, biggest insurer in, in Germany, uh, bought a significant stake in a company called Moneyfarm. Moneyfarm is a robo-advisor, a first of its kind, that offers investment and insurance advice through artificial intelligence technology. So on your phone, you can ask questions about insurance uh, and smart technology at the back um, helps you. And then you can also purchase your insurance through, through Moneyfarm. Let's look at another partnership. And I know there are some guys from Munich Re uh, with us here. But Trove, Trove is an interesting one. Trove offers on-demand insurance, something that's very, very attractive to the millennial market today. So you can switch, on your, you can switch your insurance on and off as you go along. So if I go away for the weekends and, and I leave my Mac at home, then I can, switch my, I can switch my insurance on. And then when I come back uh, after the weekend away and I get back to my, my house, I can switch my insurance back off. So it's on-demand insurance, and you can also insure individual goods. A bit of a game changer. And Munich Re decided we need to partner with this company. And this is just one of the examples of Munich Re partnering, and Munich Re being very innovative in their partnering with uh, with insurtech firms. Let's look at uh, one more example. AXA, uh, which is a massive uh, insurer in France, I think one of the biggest. 
decided to, to buy a significant stake in a company called Gasolid. Gasolid is a very interesting one. Um, so I think when we talk about InsureTech, we like to start talking about um, the broker market and how that might become obsolete. But Gasolid is a bit, little bit different. Gasolid uses very clever technology to become a personal assistant to brokers. To brokers. So what they do is they generate leads, high quality leads for, for the broker market. Very interesting um, company to look into if you play in that space. And there are countless examples of, um, of insurers partnering all over the world. An example like Spixi, which is a collaborative effort between one actuary and one computer scientist um, that again is an artificial, uh, artificial intelligence company looking to reinvent the insurance uh, industry. When we talk about partnership, there are currently nine insurers interested in partnering with, uh, with Spixi to enable their technologies. Right, so those are some of the examples, and I think I'm now out of time. So I'm going to end with a little bit of a challenge. This, I'm, I know this was probably a lot to, to take in, and I want to thank you for your time. But I want to end off with, with this challenge. We all know that the, the insurance game is changing. And the actually, the actually consists of a, or has a very valuable skill set. That is true. And I believe in this industry. I definitely do. I believe in this profession. But we also need to be honest about the fact that sometimes our profession is seen as a little bit closed off as a profession that, is, that doesn't collaborate well. And I want to pose this challenge to you. In the next week or so, let's start looking for opportunities. Opportunities to open up. Opportunities to collaborate not only with other companies, but with other skill sets. To ensure not only the good of our profession, but I believe the insurance industry as a whole. And with that, I thank you for your time. Thank you so much for a very thought-provoking um, presentation. Um, I think it's an interesting time we're living in. Um, the ability to, uh, for us as a profession to be more relevant in broader areas, but also to ensure that we can communicate effectively and collaborate with, with other professions and across industries, I think, is, is where our strength will lie. I'd now like to open the floor up for questions. While you're gathering your thoughts, maybe if I can pose a question. In terms of the collaboration, um, you mentioned that there were some challenging um, times in, um, in ensuring how one could get um, an approach of understanding. I mean, throwing the, you know, the, the, the idea or the scope of work across the fence and then back and forth. And what did you find was successful? in ensuring that you could collaborate in an effective manner. Yeah, so, so there was a specific project um, that, that Avish and I, I worked on, and, and at that time when I got, got involved, um, I was still understanding the old way of working. So, so uh, writing a spec uh, and then submitting that to a business analyst. 
and a business analyst needing to translate that into uh, into technology language, and then the business analyst needing to translate that for, for, for the IT professional, and then the IT professional needs to. So we so we go back to that fence versus fence uh, analogy. So, but what worked is uh, was was the collaborative effort. So so being able to almost become a a purple person, which is a concept of saying, uh, being able to understand the business side of things, but also understand the pain on the data side um, of things, uh, and that, that that was important for us. But again, it's it's a lot of challenges, uh, and I think Avish alluded to those some of those challenges about, and there are always personalities involved, uh, you know. But but as soon as you as you start working together and you start realizing the greater good or the end state that you want to achieve then it becomes a, a lot easier, um, that, that collaboration. Renafish, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I think throw that spec away. I think it's about communication. I think, I, I think it's about face-to-face it's, it's -face communication. It's, it's about the personal touch. It's about understanding what the person is saying, not, in, not on the paper, but from their voice. Uh, sometimes you can see pain in their eyes. You need to understand which is the most important thing that they want to address. And we can always retrofit the spec, but let's start with face-to-face -face communication first. Let's make friends. <laughs> Any questions from the floor? There's one in front here. Hi. Um, when you work in an environment where you um, bring a lot of different types of data sources together, um, you have to work with a lot of different types of specialists as well. Um, just getting everybody together in a room has also got its drawbacks because, um, you know, everybody sees a different uh, type of dog or type of um, project that you have to implement. Um, so how do you, what are the steps that you propose will make that interaction more successful that people have to take beforehand um, before they actually get together yeah so, so so it's an interesting analogy seeing a seeing a different type of dog and I think that is even worse if it's done via paper and not face to face um, so I think it's a, it's it's and it comes back to breaking down our silos right so so, and, and there are project-based approaches, and, and maybe I'll talk to the specific example, the way we've done that is, is being able to put those guys together in a room, so to establish your teams and putting, putting them together in a room for two or three week periods, and, and always force them to work together, and that's the only way where, where, how we can change, change our mindsets. Um, so I think those are, those are important steps, uh, steps to take. Um, I don't know if you... Yeah, yeah sure. I think... I think we, we must also understand that there is a clear objective that we all want to achieve. And we've got to make sure that in the beginning of the process that we all establish what that objective is and what roles we're each going to play to achieve those objectives. Then you've got to have somebody in the room who can control the conversation. It's very important. Uh, yes, I know it's a, it's a very difficult skill, but there are people out there who can control a conversation and control people in the room. In order, to, in order to meet a specific outcome. Because once you let the, the conversation roll on too much, you are in trouble. You end up going into avenues you don't want to go down. And you forget what, you, what your primary role of being in the room is all about. There's one at the back there. 
Thank you. Um, I particularly liked your diagram which showed where data came into the lake and then the actuary is kind of adding that value at the top in terms of solving business problems. But I'm interested to know whether you think there should be any change to the way in which we educate actuaries for the future, which would perhaps enable them to have that conversation more easily because they know the IT language and whether you think that's something that we should be looking at. I love that question. Um, because uh, because I definitely share that that sentiment and and if if we take a look at the um, Australian society of actuaries, they they are um, they are introducing a data science course uh, into their into their curriculum, uh, which is very important because it's it's a different skill set and it's a bit of a mindset change and and it requires us. You know, I think I think actuaries. In the past, and, and that's what we're really good at, we're, we're good at solving complex business problems, and, and, and we, we're good at math, but, but we have to be honest that tech available today has solved a lot of our math already. So, so the required skill set is changing. And, um, and maybe it's more of a, a comment than an answer, but, it, but I, want to, I, want to, I want to agree with you that we definitely need to start thinking about the way we educate actuaries and... and, and um, and gaining additional skills because the playing field is changing. If I, okay. <laughs> well, maybe just to add, I think um, I recently saw an update on the IIA's uh, syllabus, and so I think they're moving in the right direction. Where on the CT or sort of the initial technical level subjects, they are introducing some of the concepts. I think we almost need to also go further. Um, to, as uh, Devolt alluded to, I mean, it's important to understand and be able to speak the language um, of, of the data scientist, and, but to a large extent, automation will be taking away a lot of that work and, and the detailed Excel work and all these things that we are doing with, the, with the, the, the poor data sources. And we need to start looking at, well, what, what is sort of the next level of problems that we are, are trying to face and being able to interface potentially with computer scientists that are incredible coders, are incredibly good at understanding the mathematics, but explaining to them the, our real strong points, which is the insurance know-how um, and understanding of risk. Thank you. Hi, Riyad Mayad from AIG. Uh, I've just got some comments and then a question. So um, it's quite interesting that you're talking about um, mapping data. Um, I've sort of found that sometimes when you get data from multiple sources, there's a lot of mapping issues. Um, you know, and some data is more reliable than others. So it's it's probably just to note that that uh, theoretically it sounds very interesting to map things. Probably when you look at a postcode, but once you look at certain more complex things like vehicles, it becomes a bit more of a, a tricky thing. Uh, another thing to note is that I tend to find providers, especially when they're smaller and just breaking into the industry, they're quite uh, open to you using that data and mapping things. And once they get uh, bigger and you know uh, a bit more powerful, if you want to call it, call it that, then it suddenly becomes their IP and it, you know, it, it can uh, you know, make things a little bit difficult down the line you know, uh, in terms of the dependencies that you have on these providers. Um, just more of a question in terms of the changing regulatory environment where there's a lot more control on information and we've seen things like Poppy and that. 
Um, where do you guys actually see the environment going, you know, in terms of this partnering um, in a post-poppy environment? Yeah, look, that's, that's very true. And um, I think one of the words that I did use just to address your comments to start off with was investment. And investment is all part of that. Data mapping does not belong on the IT fence, but IT can certainly facilitate it and bring the tools to help you do it a bit more quicker. But ultimately, that, that responsibility belongs to business, ultimately. And there are challenges. There's no data set that's going to be clean or get harmonized into your environment. When you start to talk about um, the regulation, um, I think, well, what's it called, RCR or RCB or something of that nature, uh, I think that technology has evolved quite a bit, and some tools have evolved quite a bit, that they have baked in regulation into their systems. Now, the challenge that you have right now is, is that whether the tool set has the ability to, to give you your regulatory reporting is one aspect, but we sit in the case of where we have um, legacy systems and data structures that are not conducive to producing those reports. And that's where it really gets tricky. I think that, 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 that right now, on any analytical uh, uh, initiative, if you do not take the regulator into uh, play and cater for the regulator from the start, you are in trouble and make your data sets and make, well, not even from analytics, even from your source system point of view. They have got to be able and, and agile enough to cater for the change in regulation. But the change in regulation is not going to stop. That, that, that's what we must all uh, acknowledge right now. But our systems have to be built so that they can agilely uh, adapt to a change in regulation. That's the only way that we can do it. Legacy systems, that's a whole different ballgame. Those are inherent challenges that we've got to take on. So maybe just to add, Riyad, I mean, um, on your, your data privacy, or the, it is definitely a, a challenge, but I think what we have seen uh, from our, our um, other, other colleagues is I, th I think they like using the word uh, tokenization and you know, phrases like that. They're, it's certainly not a silver bullet, but I think there are ways in which you can either through aggregation um, or, or tokenization or things like that, at least to an extent, get around, um, not necessarily get around, but um, extract only really what you need from without violating any, any privacy concerns. I think we have time for one more question. Okay, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank our presenters, um, Avish, Carl and Diavolt, for a very thought-provoking um, presentation. I think going forward, the role of an actuary will definitely change, becoming more technologically um, empowered, but also holding on to what we're good at. And I mean, from a lot of the conversations we've had in the big data spaces, what, would, what benefit does, does actuaries bring? And um, some of the, um, the aspects that have been put forward is, first of all, our professionalism and ethics. We are a very good, trusted set of hands that um, industries can rely on um, in terms of the work that we do, that we're not going to make promises that um, we're not going to keep and that we will protect them as, as organizations as they move into this very disruptive world of trying to figure out how to use information and technology more effectively, but also our ability to collaborate and communicate. And I think um, often as actuaries we think we're not that good at it, but compared to um, a lot of other professionals, I think we do have a skill set there that we just need to keep on harnessing. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, please um, 
take some of the thoughts um, back home with you, collaborate, and um, let's see how we can drive analytics into the insurance space. Thank you.